This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today I'm talking to Enrique Salmon. He's the author of a book that I really, really love. It's a beautiful book called Uragara, The Kinship of Plants and People, American Indian Ethnobotanical Traditions and Science. How are you, Enrique? Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm really glad to be able to talk to you about this book, and I'm hoping we can talk about some other parts of your work as well. How long did it take you to put this book together? It's uh, You cover 80 different plants, and I'm just kind of uh, amazed that you have so much information here. Well, I think between the time that the editors of Timber Press reached out to me and then it was finally finished when I gave them uh, a finished manuscript. It was maybe a year and a half, somewhere in there. And then of course, you know, an extra six months or so by the time they actually were able to get the book on their shelves. Um, you know, some people might think that seems pretty fast, but I, I remind people that for 60 whatever years of my life, I've been Im immersed in, in different kinds of plant knowledge. And for about 40 years, I think I estimated the other day, um, I've been working directly with plant specialists, as I recall, native plant people sometimes um, for about 40 years, working directly with people from different indigenous cultures and sharing plant knowledge and learning so much from people from my own culture, from um, Navajo, Hopi, uh, you name it, just about any, or so many different indigenous cultures from North America and also from um, other parts of the world. So it wasn't that difficult for me to transfer so much of that knowledge that's in my head into Eight, only 80 plants. I told the Timber Press that you know I could have done a lot more, but I would need a, a bit more time. Maybe I'll <laughs> do a follow-up book. <laughs> well, it's I, I think it's actually, um, I mean, in a way, it's good that you limited it to this number of plants because there's just so much information here. And I think it's especially interesting, you know, all of us, you know, we don't all get to travel to all parts of the country. This is not, you know, big a big continent, and there's a lot of, you know, things grow. People have different plant knowledge in different parts of the country, and they, you know, there are some plants in here that are going to be new to almost anybody who picks up the book. Right. And you, you touch upon something that is important. I also make this point in the opening section of, of the book that, Yes, uh, native plant knowledge is specific to certain ecosystems. So, you know, what a, a plant specialist from here in California knows and has grown up with is not necessarily going to apply to an Abenaki from Vermont because the ecosystems and the plants especially are just so different. Exactly. Although what you talk about at, at the beginning of the book, and I think this is really the kind of theme, is that you're working in an area of relationship of human to plant. 
that is really different than what dominant Western culture view, which is to look at plants as useful objects rather than as relatives. What you describe in the book is a different way of relating to the natural world expressed in the plants and the relationship of humans to plants. And the theme is common across all of the people that you've talked to and talk about. And, you know, it's the relationship to the natural world that's different. Yes, you're exactly right. You know, Western botanists, for example, and even Western trained herbalists, they look to the plants exactly as you said. They're they're objects. They're they're things. They're non-living entities that we can derive. In this case, a lot of times, you know, medicine from healing sort of phytochemicals, and or maybe we grow them in our garden so we can eat them and so on, or put them in a corner of our office because it you know, kind of brightens up the place. But for a traditional indigenous person, and I've seen this pretty much everywhere I've, I've worked around the world with native folks, the, the plants are direct relatives of ours. They are often referred to with the same relational names that we give to our human aunts and uncles and, and grandparents. And in my my tribe's case, we classify plants by gender and ethnicity. So we treat them as, as if they are just another form of humanity. And we oftentimes, when I say we, Native peoples, a lot of our origin stories are centered around sometimes plants that have played a direct role in helping the people get to this level of existence. In other words, they helped our emergence right. into this place now. And so uh, the, the relationship is just so much different. It's much more of an equal hierarchy than, you know, plants are just these these non-living entities. You know, it's, it is interesting. I, I spent a lot of time when I was in college studying creation myths across hundreds of cultures. And it's really interesting that in North American tribal uh, mythologies of all different kinds, there is some commonality of just what you've been talking about, the, the, the idea of emergence, um, contrasted to... Um, some other cultures where there's a kind of um, master builder, you know, the, the, I mean, there still can be create the idea of the creator may be common, but it's um, the role of plants and animals, the role of the natural world in most indigenous cultures is very different than in Western culture. And you can see that in the creation myths. Yes, you know, so much of uh, Western-based spiritual practices do focus on a particular deity or maybe a set of deities or a particular entity that played a role in creating the universe and so on and creating the earth especially. But for indigenous peoples, um, it's more of 
of how I had said, as I said before, you know, the the landscape itself is the source of our values right. and our morals, and all of our stories emerge from these unique landscapes. And when we practice our ceremonies and we sing our our, our songs and so on, and even when we tell our our stories, like coyote stories and raven stories, in a sense, we're giving voice to that intersection of, of us and our landscape. We are voicing the land. And there's also a, a there's a different sense of mutuality. I think that instead of the idea of man, humanity, man over nature, um, it, the difference observably is is the relationship between humans and um, other beings. That it's not just nature in this sort of um, idea that it's an again a thing to be um, used, conquered, tamed. Uh, controlled. It's more of a mutuality of a relationship to, um, with between the one and the world, and in its all its variousness and multiplicity. I think that's a really it is a really completely different um, theism. Um, you know, I, I, we know that, but I think what what's really interesting is in you know not only in your book here, but in the sort in the notion of how that is a you know how that how important that is today when we are at a point where um the observable ef negative effects of the notion of using nature as opposed to working with nature uh or the natural world have become so obvious to more and more people because we've caused so much harm rather than um living together with the net, with other beings, we have sought to control them, and the result is uh, too much, so much damage that it's almost impossible for us to survive. You know, this this comes up a lot in in um, the classes that I teach. You know, I teach uh, one class, cultures of habitat. It's an ethnobotany class. I borrowed the name from another a friend of mine, another author, actually Gary Nabhan who wrote a book called Cultures of Habitat. And then I teach this other class called Eating the Landscape, which is essentially an ethnoecology, agroecology um, themed course. And that, the name for that class is based on a previous book that I'd written, Eating the Landscape. But this idea of, of non-Western indigenous ways of managing landscapes in a sustainable way pops up a lot in, in both of these classes. And a great example of what you're talking about as you know, with native agriculture working with the land, working with natural systems as opposed to conquering them like modern agribusiness does with genetically modified organisms and herbicides and pesticides and so on is can be found in northern Arizona with uh, traditional Hopi farmers who, for example, grow 
their food starting in March and all the way to around this time of year without any modern source of irrigation. It's all what you would call dryland farming or direct uh, precipitation agriculture. And one example related to this is where instead of tilling the soil, like you see in so much of Central California or over in the, the Great Plains where they just dig up the soil and expose all the nutrients and the moistures in the soil to the atmosphere and you lose so much of it. Hopi farmers will plant their corn seeds, for example, with a digging stick where they dig down about a foot, twirl it around, put the seeds there, cover it up, take a step, do the same thing and repeat the process all across their fields. And what happens here is that any moisture, any nutrients that have been gathered in the soil remains there. And so, and then also they plant, they, they, they find particular areas where there's the slightest bit of angle in the field so that and it's often next to the mesa or a hillside. And so any moisture that does come down during the summer monsoons or has been left over from the winter snows and rains will naturally flow down into their corn and bean fields. And so they figured this out over a millennia and have been doing this sustainably all this time and without having to disrupt the natural systems that are happening in their corn and bean fields. This is true. Although, you know, you'll probably have heard this argument that the um, uh, you, you can only support so many people with that form of agriculture. And I guess the challenge that we face today is how do we feed a world with eight or nine billion people in it um, and still create a sustainable agriculture or even a sustainable plant gathering. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, if, if you were successful in selling your book to millions of people and they would go out into the wood, learn, learn from your book and then go out into the woods or desert or wild areas and start, you know, collecting those herbs or those plants, they'd be gone. So, you know, it's that kind of conundrum that we preserve wildness. We want people to enjoy it. And then when people go to the wild lands, there's so many people go there, they destroy it. And so we have these kind of um, uh, contradictions that are really hard to solve. Uh, and especially, you know, you think about agriculture supporting uh, the number of people that we have. How can we do it in a sustainable way on a large scale? Even though I believe it's possible, it's really hard to convert the, agri the industrial agricultural systems that we have that are based on um, heavy input of fossil fuel um, to a non-fossil fuel economy. It would be difficult, but not impossible. There's been published examples in South America in particular where the combination of aquaculture and unique kind of you know, on-the-ground agricultural practices yields can be 
the same, if sometimes not even more than modern agribusiness. I can't think of the titles of, of a couple of these articles I've read right now, but you know, they it is happening, and people are, you know, researchers are figuring this out. But I think you're correct that in order to for modern agribusiness to shift to that kind, those kinds of systems would be difficult because there's so many um, allegiances that modern agribusiness has with the uh, pesticide, herbicide companies and companies like Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto and so on. And politically, it would be even tough to, to sell this to so many people from the West, especially. Although it would be, it's easier to sell and has been working in the global South. We're seeing these examples of sustainable agriculture in South America on the African continent. So yeah, it is it is possible, but would be tough to sell it to, today to the West. Right, but it is true. Yeah, I think you have to start somewhere, and mm-hmm. there are there are examples, possibilities, you know, things that seem to have promise, and hopefully they'll be able to create enough of a of a wave to grad. You know, because you sort of look at change, it it appears to be impossible until it isn't, and it may also be impossible for us to not change because we're being faced with increasing stress. Um, You have to change uh, unless we, you know, that we have to find a way of altering the way we live on the earth. It's just what we're doing is not going to work. Yeah, we're going to have to do it sooner, probably more than later, because these these, uh, global climate shifts are happening faster than climate scientists have been predicting yeah and this is where this is one one of the reasons why i i do my work and why i write like the other book eating the landscape and this one we get out trying to in my little bit of of way to help people understand that there is an alternative there's another way for us to interact with natural systems and that in native indigenous peoples still holds some of this information in our our traditional narratives and our our stored libraries of this ecological knowledge um it's just a matter of of researchers knowing how to ask the questions in order to get the information that is required like say somebody's hopi agriculturalist or Maybe Timon and Tohono O'odham farmers down in southern Arizona who for for centuries have hybridized foods like corn so that it reaches maturity in 90 days instead of 120 days in in the desert, you know, the Sonoran Desert, or growing hybridized beans like tepary beans that actually do better with less water. If you overwater the tepary bean plants, all they do is produce foliage and just a few bean pods. And you actually water it less and the plant for some reason will produce more pods, which is good for the plant and good for the people wanting to eat the beans. So yeah, there, the information is there. We just gotta know how to ask the questions. And I think there is an increased 
awareness. And I think there's an increased interest on the part of indigenous people in sharing the knowledge because I, I see more and more all around North America, in Canada too, and First Nations in Canada are working pretty hard to let their, um, you know, to let Canada know what they know um, about, I mean, for them, it's living in the North um, and things are, you know, definitely climate is warming there, but they still have knowledge that, uh, that, you know, kind of uh, Western agriculture doesn't know how to address. Yeah, I think uh, people forget or don't even bother to think about the reality that Native peoples have never been this static sort of, of cultures. We have constantly adapted to shifting ecosystems and climates and so on. Um, when Europeans first showed up, what they saw and then started to document is what Westerners have assumed we were always like and will always be like. Right. And not recognizing that you know, Native peoples have constantly be shifting and moving. You know, you mentioned up by the Canadian border, you know, I was speaking to people yesterday on a webinar in Washington State and telling them the story about how wild rice came to Ashinaabe, the Ojibwe. And it's not that the wild rice has suddenly started growing up on the Great Lakes area there. The Ojibwe actually had migrated to this area. And it's just an example of how Native peoples have always shifted, have adapted, have moved. It's just that the U.S. government, in case the United States, stuck us in these places, you know, when they started to take over our landscape, and we've never been able to, or ever since then, we haven't been able to to continue our dynamic sort of cultural shifts and adaptation. That's true, although it is also true that Native cultures have been resilient despite constraints. And, you know, even over the last hundred years, a lot of adaptation has gone on. I mean, if you think about all of the Southeastern tribes that were moved to Oklahoma, taken away from a, an ecosystem that was completely different from what Oklahoma is, um, you know, from Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Western Georgia, beautiful, incredibly lush, um, wet and humid landscapes that taken to Oklahoma, which is basically dry land. And they mm -hmm. have figured, you know, they had to figure out how to live there. Um, they adapted pretty well. I mean, not happily, not, not, not because of choice, but, um, you know, a lot of the people who, um, who live in Oklahoma today have become Oklahoman in some way. <laughs> well, adaptation is a central component of resilience. I've, you know, I've studied resilience theory for, for a while now, and one of the most important things is the ability to adapt to shocks to any system. I, you know, I wondered this for a long time about my people, you know, down in the Sierra Madres of, of Northwest Mexico. Why, you know, let me go back. And when I was doing my, my dissertation research, I came across a document in these archives in Mexico City, and it was a document written by a Jesuit missionary in 1767. 
And it was about this 18-inch long piece of, of paper. And on it was essentially this long list of indigenous communities of tribes or indigenous nations, however you want to think about it, that had already gone extinct mm. by 1767, north of what today would be, say, you know, um, Mazatlan in Mexico. And I was just astounded by how many, by 1767, of these communities had disappeared. At the same time, I was wondering, why then did my people survive? Why are the Yaqui still there and the Mayo and some of these other indigenous communities? And a big part of it was our people were able to adapt or to adjust to this shock of the Spanish entrada. And learning from the shock and then through the learning adapting and then through the adaptation shifting what needed to be shifted part of that includes of course absorbing into your own culture things from the invading culture in this case that works without losing the central part of your culture's identity and so that's why you go to northern New Mexico and you see Pueblo peoples conducting their traditional ceremonies in front of the Catholic Church. <laughs> why, yep. you know, why Quanah Parker in the 1890s created the, the, the Native American Church, which if you pay attention to it, there's a lot of Christian components in it. It's just all part of this, of shifting and adapting so we can survive. That's yeah. resilient. Yeah, I think that happened. You know, I, I, I'm from New England, so I've spent a lot of time kind of trying to find out who was here before and um, what they were like and what they did. And it's a similar thing. I found this old book which lists um, tribes that lived in southern New England going back to the 1600s. And, you know, they don't always get the names right. They weren't, you know, because the English settlers were really not very attendant to the pronunciations or the languages of the people who were here before them. But there, similarly, there are all these tribes that you really have never heard of that were here before. Um, many of them died off because of disease uh, brought by the Europeans, and then the remnants would merge with another tribe. You know, you would have um, people moving in together who to with relatives basically as a survival mechanism and intermarrying so that the old tribe identity might have been lost but there's the surviving tribe is what we have today um also adapting um and becoming you know practicing christianity but also practicing um their old older religions I actually even think that happened with some of the, you know, if you look at Ireland and Scotland where the Celtic tribes were um, uh, taken over, you know, their land was taken over by the British um, and they kept their early um, pre-Christian practices well into the 17th, 17th century persecuted and, and had to keep it quiet because they would be killed for, for being heathens, you know, pagans or whatever they wanted to call them. So it's, you know, that was, that was happening all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he used an important word. I'm not sure you meant to, but you were used the word becoming. And I think this is important 
for your listeners in regards to indigenous peoples, not just in North America, but all around the world. We are, our ceremonies are actually celebrations of this constant, ongoing becoming. We are always immersed in this vibrant and dynamic creation. And going back to the earlier part of our conversation, a big difference between indigenous spirituality and the religious practices that emerged out of the Middle East and Israel and so on, where the earth was created once by a deity. For indigenous peoples, the earth is in constant creation. And we, as a part of that creation, are responsible for continuing the creation and helping it to to constantly transform. And that's another concept related to this notion of becoming, this transformation is ongoing and celebrated and respected. And we see this, you know, for example, in in my book, Iwigata, I, I talk towards the beginning about the importance of cedar for Pacific Northwest um, communities and indigenous communities. And particularly, I mentioned the cedar mask dancers. And, you know, I, I mentioned how transformation is a recurring theme in American Indian narrative and worldview and art and in ceremony. When the cedar mask dancers don the mask, you know, they become chief of the sea, they become raven. And it's just another example of things that I think modern industrialized humans can not have to fully embrace, but at least recognize and pay attention to, and maybe incorporate a little bit into our lives and recognizing that, yeah, we're going to have to do the same kind of becoming and transformation in order to survive these earth changes that are happening now in front of our eyes. I think that's a very, really powerful concept. Actually, I'm really glad you talked about that because I think that's, you know, that should inspire us. You know, the, the notion of transformation, it's embracing change. It's not being afraid of change. It's seeing change as um, stages uh, of becoming, as you really rightfully pointed out, that um, human life is a constant change of in a constant form of a state of becoming it's not a state of a, a static space either or a static state either so i no, i think that's really important and um in fact that's kind of uh, you know the inspiration that you can take from this book which is that um taking the time to it become part of the other become part of the world by listening instead of always trying to dominate and control and by being open to a different view that allows you to change it that's what's necessary is to be open and to um silence all of the preconception all the voices that are in our heads about what we can be and should be to be open to something different and i think people could would be amazed of what they can 
recognize and see when they take the time to just stop and pay attention to what's going on around them. I'm reminded of an assignment that I give to students in one of my classes. I was trying to figure out, well, how can I get my students to at least feel and, and get a little sort of glimpse of what it's like to look at your surroundings like a traditional native person would. And so I devised an assignment that was a semester long assignment where once a week, they can, you know, their choice, they can watch either a sunset or a sunrise and they can do it wherever they wanted to. Although I told them if the best places to choose would be maybe on a hillside or anywhere where there's a view for maybe a mile or so. And you can find a point or an object in the distance that's in relation to where the sun is rising or setting. Once a week, go to that same spot, same exact time of day, and just watch for 20 minutes. And then I asked them to journal this every week. And at first, you know, I was reading their, their journals and the, a lot of them are kind of confused or not sure why Dr. Salmon is asking them, asking them to watch a sunrise or a sunset. But then after a couple of weeks or so, I start to notice in their journals things that they're, they're all of a sudden noticing that weren't there before or they didn't pick up on before. And Noticing one case, this, this young man was writing about how he noticed every week this deer coming to chew on a bush. And then he took the initiative to figure out, well, what is that bush? What's the, its, uh, what's its, its usefulness to the deer? Why could it be important to people? Um, noticing the, in the shift in the insects. You know, and one girl decided to at her car at the base of the San Mateo Bridge mm -hmm. here in the, I'm not sure your audience, you know, I'm, I'm, I live in the Bay Area um, on the east side of the Bay, and the San Mateo Bridge spans the, the southern part of the San Francisco Bay, and she would just park there and just watch the, 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 the edge of the bay there, and noticing the different birds coming and so on. So my point is, at the end of the semester, most of the students became, for most of the students, their awareness of their surroundings expanded tenfold. And a lot of them were saddened by the fact that they weren't going to be asked to do this anymore. And some of them said they're going to continue the practice, just stopping at least once a week for 20 minutes and just paying attention to what's going on around them. I think that's a really good idea. No, it's a great, I think that's a great practice. In fact, I think I could benefit from doing that. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, I don't get up early enough to watch the sunrise, but I can watch the sunset. And uh, I think it's a, I think it, it literally is a perfect way to remind yourself uh, and to be part of something other than yourself. Um, it's Most a, of the students did did choose the sunsets. 
<laughs> yeah, we're, that's because we're all lazy and we don't want to get up early. <laughs> well, Enrique, this has been really wonderful talking to you. I so much enjoyed it, and I I hope that um, I, I find your book really inspiring and beautiful, and li I love listening to you talk. So I, I wish I was young enough to take a class. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this. I do have seniors students with some of my <laughs> online classes. <laughs> well, maybe oh, I'll have to look that up because I I won't be able to get to the Bay Area, but I could do an online class. That would be really fun. <laughs> well, this has been uh, Writer's Cast. I've been talking to Enrique Salmon about this incredible book, Irigara, uh, The Kinship of Plants and People, American Indian Ethnobotanical Traditions and Science. It's a book I really recommend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.